listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Tonight we mark Trinity Sunday. Stands as something of a bridge to move from Eastertide and Pentecost into the long season of ordinary time. And one of the things that really distinguishes Trinity Sunday is the brevity of the readings. I mean, you'd barely had time to settle down into your pew to hear the reading from Romans, and suddenly I'm inviting you to stand for the proclamation of the gospel. Well, you stood up and you turned to face the reader, and then after all of four verses, it was the word of the Lord. And you're once again sitting back down in the pew, I mean, it's five verses from Romans and only four from the Gospel according to John. Look at the time. Man, if Jamie isn't too long-winded, we'll be out of here really early tonight. (laughs) Quite frankly, the readings are brief because when it comes to selecting passages that speak in Trinitarian terms, the options are actually fairly limited. Word Trinity never appears in the Bible, and only very occasionally are the names Father, Son, and Spirit, or God, Son, and Spirit included in the same passage. In fact, in the early 1900s, there was a movement in Pentecostalism called Oneness Pentecostalism that actually set aside the doctrine of the Trinity altogether. And some of those churches are still around. Just put it aside altogether, saying it wasn't biblical, but instead entirely an invention of the ancient council of Nicaea. But of course, that move only makes sense if you assume that once the last word was written in the Bible... All discernment and revelation came to an abrupt halt. But even that comes with a bit of an inner contradiction, because the question of which books should be included in the New Testament wasn't actually settled until well into the third century. And how did they settle the, you know, the the final canon of the New Testament? Well, through inspiration, certainly. Discernment, too, that's, that's, a, that's a very tidy word. Dispute, contentious dispute, argument and counter-argument over centuries. Yet after the dust had settled, we had this collection we call the New Testament, this canon of gospels and letters, writings, that has moved and shaped and nourished and challenged and inspired generation after generation after generation. Well, that same blend of inspiration, discernment, dispute, and argument is there with the articulation of what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, right from the moment Paul and the others first put their pen to parchment, the followers of Jesus were faced with this kind of extraordinary challenge. From the beginning, they had stood with their Jewish forebears as a monotheistic faith. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And yet, as those who walked with Jesus had deepened in their knowledge and their understanding of him, they had also recognized God in his face. My Lord and my God. That's what the disciple Thomas cries out when he finally witnesses the resurrected Christ. Every tongue should confess, Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So they had one God who Jesus had called quite intimately Father, but they also had in the face of Jesus another glimpse of God, and they needed to yet contend with one more reality, that of God's continuing presence in them and with them through the presence of the Spirit. Now, how to hold these things together, these three experiences, encounters, understandings of the one God? Well, it took a good while to finally articulate what we now celebrate as the doctrine of the Trinity, classically given voice in the fourth century in the words of the Nicene Creed. Yet, quite honestly, the creedal language of Jesus Christ as, quote, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, and the Spirit as, quote, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, it can seem all a bit technical, even obtuse. What, what are we saying here? So let me take you for a few minutes into this reading from Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul, who lived long before those creeds were formulated and who never had to sit in a seminary classroom struggling to find the right words to satisfy some systematic theology professor. Since we are justified by faith, he writes. That's his great theme, right? That we are set right with God, not by what we do, but as a sheer raw gift. Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. We are declared justified in spite of all the unjustifiable stuff of our lives. And this is being set at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is seeing a kind of a dynamic relationship between God the Father and Jesus the Son. A relationship through which we are caught up and set at peace. We are given a home. We are blessed with grace. He sees a dynamic, a relational thing. This sort of relational exchange happens or is happening eternally and we're swept up by it with mercy declared over our lives. And yet Paul, the apostle of an audaciously wild grace, Paul, who can name himself the chief among sinners and also positively rhapsodize over the folly, the foolishness of the cross, Paul is ever so aware that none of this is some proverbial walk in the park. It's not like you get caught up in this relationship between God the Father and God the Son and everything's instantly all right. 
He knows that terrible things still happen, that suffering is very, very real. And so off he goes addressing that. He says, we boast in our suffering. Only Paul, I mean, Paul's got real chutzpah. Only Paul would say, we boast in our suffering because suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. But be really careful how you hear those words from Paul. Because it might, for a moment anyway, sound as if he's saying something like, suffering is being inflicted upon you by God precisely to build you up in character and give you hope. That's not what he's expressing here. Nor is he saying anything so cliched as God only gives us as much as we can handle. Something that is often assumed to be biblical, but it isn't. That's not a biblical quote at all. Elsewhere, Paul does say God will not tempt you with more than you can handle. But temptation is quite a different thing from suffering. To say God gives you suffering to make you better is way too mechanistic way too calculated. It's just a kind of a straight-line proposition. It doesn't work. One of the real privileges of my ministry as a priest to this community is that people tell me stuff. They let me in on what they're struggling with, what their sufferings are, what's causing them pain. So I look out, and I see a dozen more dozens of those stories written on the faces of the people here with whom I've shared those conversations. And I know, I know somebody is working through the death of a parent. Somebody's dealing with cancer or some other chronic illness. Somebody's living with a brain injury. Somebody's depressed, badly depressed. Somebody else struggles with fear and anxiety. Somebody lives in agony over a marriage failure or estrangement from an adult child. I know the stories, and I can tell you, none of these things have been given them by God as a way of teaching or of building up character. But, Paul would want us to hear, but even such sufferings Such things that can be so horrible, hard things, difficult, almost impossibly so to bear. Even those sufferings are not given the final word because they can produce endurance, which can fold into a deepened character, which can produce hope. But how is that? How how does that series come to be? Because, Paul writes, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. You see, Paul has now added the third to that dynamic relationship he'd recognized at work between father and son. It's now a threefold dynamic relationship through the Holy Spirit. And that's what sweeps us up too. Even in the midst of impossible sufferings and challenges, we too can be swept up. It can set us at peace, if only for that window of time. And then the hard work goes on. Doesn't mean it's easy, 
Or that there's a quick fix zapping that will take it all away. Just wipe out all suffering and pain altogether. Not this side of the grave. I recently returned to an extraordinary essay by Frederick Beekner, An essay called Adolescence and the Stewardship of Pain. And I want to read to you just a few lines from Beekner's essay. Beekner himself has known deep, deep personal pain, beginning as a little boy when his father chose to end his own life and his mother refused to ever even talk about it. Yet in his writings and his teaching and his preaching, Beekner discovered a call to be a, a good steward of that pain, to minister and teach from it and through it, And so he writes, To bury your pain is a way of surviving your pain, and therefore by no means to be dismissed out of hand. To bury your pain is a way of surviving, not to be dismissed out of hand. It's a way, he continues, which I venture to say has at one time or another served and continues to serve us all well. But... It's not a way of growing. See, that's, that's a big part of Paul's point here in Romans. That facing your sufferings, being given the strength by the Spirit to face your suffering, whatever that suffering might be, can become a way of growing and moving and deepening. Again, not because God wants you to grow so hurts you, but because new life can be drawn out of what seems to be only a dead end. And so Frederick Beekner continues, If you manage to put behind you the painful things that happened to you, as if they never really happened, or didn't really matter all that much when they did, then the deepest and most human things you have in you to become are not apt to happen either. But to move beyond the burial or the denial or the suppression of pain and suffering to an actual confrontation with it, wrestling with it, even embrace of it, is to see the possibility of moving, as Beekner writes, to the far side of the murmuring dark of anger and tears, to be reconciled and healed to the far side of the murmuring dark of anger and tears to be reconciled and healed. Many of the early theologians, poets of the Christian tradition imaged the Holy Trinity as a dance, the perichoresis, the mutual indwelling of the three in one, constantly moving, swirling, interweaving, and holding the very creation itself in being. I believe that part of what Paul is implying in his letter to the Romans and so his letter to us, I believe part of what he's implying is that our wounded selves have a place in that dance. And though it won't necessarily happen this side of our deaths, Even the most broken and stumbling and too left-footed of us will find ourselves dancing. Suddenly, suddenly the Trinity becomes not a 
obtuse doctrine that you have to study rightly under a systematic theology professor at a theological college. No, it becomes instead a present reality that surrounds us with hope and light and life. And so I invite you to turn in your order of service to the Nicene Creed, which comes with some complexities but also some glory, and to stand and proclaim that ancient creed with me. And so we say, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.